The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and I'm here to tell you what The Athletic has planned across its podcast network during the Euros. My pod with David Ornstein will become The Athletic's England show throughout the tournament to bring you all the latest news and insight from inside the England camp every single day. Then we'll also have nightly editions of the Totally Football Show, taking a look at all the big talking points from the competition and looking ahead to the next day's fixtures. Now, if you're feeling nostalgic for tournaments past, we've produced an eight-part documentary series that tells some fascinating stories from both on and off the pitch from the last eight Euros. Elsewhere... Michael Cox's Zonal Marking Pod will offer an in-depth tactical breakdown of all the biggest games, while Adam Hurry's Football Clichés show will take a look at the tournament's alternative storylines. So, as this never-ending domestic season finally draws to a close, we'll have plenty of Euro 2020 coverage for you to enjoy as the tournament gets underway in just a couple of weeks' time. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Now, once we've finished recording this podcast, it is our intention to never mention this season again. But we do think we should have a thorough and proper look back at what has generally been considered to be one of the worst in living memory. And to do that, I'm joined this week by The Athletic's very own Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello, Ian. It's over! Hello. Sorry. Um, it's <laughs> that is a general, generally held feeling, I think. Uh, <laughs> and we will. Uh, but we have to talk about it. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of where things went wrong, we thought we'd ask as an opening question one moment of joy that we all had uh, through the season. Um, Amy, were there moments of joy? There were one or two, weren't there? Yeah, and most of them were delivered by people far, far younger than me. Um, the, the the joy of so many moments from Saka... Uh, Emil Smith Rowe, Tierney, uh, other things that will give us hope, I think, going forward from this season. But personally speaking, and I think this probably says a lot about the season and how it's going to go down in in history. That the abiding memories are the absolute wondrousness and love I felt to be in a crowd again, and it only happened twice. Um, like James, uh, I suppose we had the privilege for our work that we did go to quite a lot of games behind closed doors. And actually, without wanting to um, sound the most soppy person uh, this side of um, Watford Gap, uh, I, I got really emotional um, when the players came out and the crowd kind of greeted them uh, the game the other day. And I think it was kind of that realisation of how awful it had been without that absence really felt accentuated. Um, But I went to... uh, There was a a little brief flurry before in in between lockdowns where Arsenal had a couple of games, I think Rapid Vienna in the Europa League group stages and Burnley in the league um, with crowds. And going back for that was just joyous. And uh, I will remain very fond of that game against Rapid Vienna that I went to with a couple of mates and we just laughed and laughed and people were singing and making daft jokes and it just made you feel glad to be alive for you know the first time in a while um and then just going along to the game the other day uh just bumping into loads of people outside was great uh and I I just want to make a quick shout out to a dear old friend of mine Bernard Azule some of you may know wrote for Laguna for a long time and um I've been watching games with Bern going back donkey's years and not seen him for a long while and we you know because we're allowed to hug we, we we had a massive hug before the game outside the ground like 
and that's what it is that's what going to football is, is as much as we love the game it's communal it's sharing it's being with your mates um and that that means a million dollars I mean, James. Before I come to you, uh, Amy, I remember we met up when we had the the, the protest. Yeah. Um, it's another highlight. The, uh, European Super League, <laughs> and how how wonderful it was to see you and see all those people there, and lots of thoughts of social distancing went out the window. To be honest with you, but it really felt good to be part of a crowd. I absolutely agree, and I feel the same way actually about Sunday as well. I went along on Sunday, and it was just lovely to hear that the roar of ten thousand people. Uh, James, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it is hard to look past those games with fans. I mean, they really do stand out. And, you know, as fortunate as Amy and I have been to sort of attend matches in the flesh, they do slightly blend into one because just without that kind of ambience, without that accompaniment of the crowd, none of it seems really real in any way. Um, But I'm going to pick a moment from on the field and a moment that happened away from the Emirates Stadium and I'm going to pick a specific goal, and it's Bukayo Saka's goal against West Brom, because that was kind of the moment that provided me with hope in our season. The combination play, Lacazette was involved, but principally Smith Rowe and Saka, the way they took that defence apart. And you just thought, well, if we've got two kids as gifted as that, that we've got something that we could potentially build on. And although it doesn't really feel like it, you know, in the second half of the season, we did do that to an extent. You know, we did um, certainly, if not quite turn the ship around entirely, slow the direction it was going in. And I think so much of that is owed to the introduction of Smith Rowe and the continued excellence of Bukayo Saka. And I just thought the beauty of that goal was perhaps their their crowning moment of the season. Bukayo Saka, by the way, who has been included in the uh, the long list um, for uh, Gareth Southgate's uh, England Euro 2020 or 2021 squad, by the way. Whether he'll make the shortlist, I don't know. It's almost like he's too good in too many positions. Uh, but yes, I would that goal, that, that was really something. And, and a few people, uh, Teo, our producer, put uh, a little note on Twitter asking for people's highlights. And that one came up a lot. Another goal against West Brom, by the way... Um, uh, Kieran Tierney uh, mm-hmm. came up a few times. Also, by the way, uh, Dale Connolly said, Kieran Tierney in short sleeves in the snow. Uh, Lucy Guna and Queen Guna agreed as well. Um, uh, uh, David A. Stefanov, David The Sky. Uh, apart from seeing fans at the Emirates, Lacquers kneeling in front of the whole Prague squad. Uh, such a proud moment. Red Heart. I think you're right, actually. That was a great moment. Um Rob Ashdown, Rob Lad, 1985. Watching Arteta and Erdegaard laugh at Jose and Lamella after full time in the North London derby has to be up there. That was a good day. Saka saying he meant that lob against Chelsea at home. I'm not sure I believe him, but that was uh, fun to watch. And West Antone said San Lehi leaving. Um, I wouldn't say that's a highlight. Executive changes, boardroom level. But, you know, fair enough. Um, I mean... The sad fact is, I was going to choose Laka, by the way, kneeling in front of the Slavia uh, Prague team. Yeah, it was a Um, great moment. It was a great moment. It made you feel proud of the team. It made you feel proud to be part of the club as well. There was another moment, by the way, on Sunday when when the players took the knee. And unlike at some other grounds that we could mention, uh, everybody clapped. uh, And and again, you you thought to yourself, yeah, you know what, there are... This season has not been great, but there are certain things that make you proud of that club. Um, so, yeah, that for me was certainly uh, the big moment. Um, I think it's sad, though, I suppose, that we can pretty much count them on the fingers of one hand highlights, really, Amy, because in the end, in the end, this has been the shittest season we've had since about the early 90s isn't it or the mid 90s well it's obviously the first one without European football for 25 years so that in itself speaks fairly loudly Um, I think it's been a I think it's been a very difficult season for management players you know fans Um, I do wonder whether for as much as the supporters are all looking back thinking thank God that's over whether players feel something similar, I can imagine it. It was actually a real slog at times this season. I think it must be hard to 
feel energized and motivated to your max. And I didn't think it was coincidental that in the in the first 10, 15 minutes or so against Brighton on Sunday, I was almost a bit like, well, who are these guys? And uh, slightly facetious, but having spent such a lot of the season banging your head against the wall, thinking this is so pedestrian and turgid and sluggish and where's the urgency it felt like the players had an extra half a yard uh had a a, a, had just more speed more determination more uh incentive more impulses to to, to, you know to be expressing themselves on the pitch now is that a coincidence that that's happening in front of a crowd didn't feel that way it felt like it was very well connected I mean, it's strange, James, isn't it? Thinking that a crowd at the Emirates, uh, the butt of so many jokes, um, can, can make a difference to our team. But they did seem more energised, didn't they, on Sunday? Yeah, I think so. And certain players, you felt as if they were kind of out to impress. I think Martin Odegaard was the one who stood out in that respect. He really did put on a bit of a show, I thought. It was a, a really impressive demonstration of his technical qualities and... The crowd appreciated that, I think, and his every touch was met with applause, pretty much. And there was a clear kind of symbioticism there, I think, between the fans and the team that was so heartening to see and has been so absent. I mean, one of the things we've said most commonly on this podcast about watching Arsenal is that it's felt a bit stale, it's felt a bit dry, it's felt a bit lifeless. And on reflection, you wonder how much the absence of the absence of fans is the cause of that. You know, not just in terms of how it affects the team, but also how it affects our perception of watching the team when we're sat home on the sofa and the the atmosphere is either complete silence or something very manufactured and very cold. Um, It's a really interesting one. And I, you know, you think about what Jurgen Klopp, for example, has achieved at Liverpool and how integral the relationship with the supporters has been to that and how open he's been about that fact. The Emirates Stadium is a very different stadium. Arsenal is a very different crowd. But I do, I am intrigued to see how this team and this manager might fare with a, a stadium full of fans. You know, it could go either way for him. I mean, if, if they lose games, Arsenal's a horrible place to be. But if you're winning and the team and the fans are rallying around the team, you know, we know that that stadium, it, it can get rocking now. You can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Just by the way, Taylor was just uh, uh, mentioned. I mean, I know you were saying, Amy, who are these guys? Some of the players have never played in front of Arsenal fans before. They were probably thinking, who are these guys as well? Which is quite, it's nice in a way that there were. Listen, we know there are green shoots and we'll get to them. I just want to talk about the optimism going into the season. We'd won the FA Cup. We'd re-signed Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I was optimistic. I think you you were as well, Amy, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that tail end of uh, of last season when Arteta first came in, it was such a mess. Um, and the way that that had turned around to offer a productive and successful end to a horrible season shows how much we can be so easily affected by, you know, the vagaries of fortune I guess whether something goes for you or against you and also the charity shield by the way or community shield or whatever it's called but Arsenal just just uh, Liverpool, overcome right. Liverpool in that as well so there was a feeling of a momentum a positive momentum 
And there was a feeling that Arteta had come in and had done a lot to shake up the um, the atmosphere and the the, the 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 demands around the place of each player and of the club as a whole. Um, and as West Ham tonally, you know, some people were intrigued by these changes behind the scenes. Um, you know, re- replacing things in, in terms of. Raul Sanyehi going out, although of course counterbalancing that with maybe the scouting department being decimated and the redundancy. So it's still a very kind of strange, fluid time of a lot going on at Arsenal when you go back to, yeah. to the end yeah. of last season, beginning of this. Um, but I, yeah, I think I think that my, that if I look back, I vaguely recall my expectations being well, top four would be a stretch, but sort of top five or six. And knocking on the door, the top four should be the intention. And giving the Europa League a real good go should also be the intention. Um, And in the end, both of those things fell short. And I I, I think Arsenal should feel a bit regretful about the Europa League situation as well. Um, Because it, it could have been Arsenal in the final. Maybe it would have ended badly against Man United, as James predicted all along. We'll never know, possibly, thankfully. But <laughs> I'll always think that semi-final was a big missed opportunity and a self-inflicted scenario. That was certainly one of the low points. I mean, listen, I thought Thomas Partey would score the winner. And as you would have noticed on Sunday, his shooting definitely was getting closer, wasn't it? He won in the first half, went just past the post and he hit the bar. So he's certainly on, on course to score a goal at some point. Um, James, I want to ask you, where were the first signs that things were not going very well? Because I'm looking at the results early on in the season. We won at Fulham and we beat West Ham at home, probably luckily. Losing to Liverpool, OK. Um, but when we lost at home to Leicester um, and and really we got mugged in that game because we probably should have won or we certainly should have scored first and that VAR cancelled a perfectly good goal. Was that when you thought it was starting to look bad or was it the Villa game a couple of games later than that? I think the Villa one was the one for me. Leicester was a disappointing result, but the performance itself, Arsenal yeah. probably deserved to get something from the game. When Villa came, they really outplayed us. They really took the game to us. You know, Leicester had sat deep and hit us with a counter-attack late on. Sometimes you get sucker punch like that. We were unfortunate with the officiating. The Villa one, that definitely rang alarm bells um, we got stuffed didn't we in we game. did we got, yeah. we got and, really you know, properly beaten Jack Grealish and Ross Barkley absolutely took us apart on the day um, uh, Ollie Watkins I think played that day and ran us ragged as well we were the second best team you know in that encounter and that was a big big concern um, I'm trying to think what the other big warning signs were I mean obviously you know the major piece of transfer business, well, one of the big pieces of transfer business we did was Willian. It was quite clear after that initial Fulham game that he didn't hit the ground running in any sort of fashion. Uh, Aubameyang, we talked about the optimism that surrounded his contract. That wasn't really reflected in terms of what he was doing on the pitch at the time. He was playing on the left-hand side and not replicating the form he'd shown there the previous season. So there were a few warning signs early on that, that I think precipitated that really dismal stretch of games where I think we went seven league matches without a win and that ultimately you know when every time I think back about this season that's the period that I reflect on Um, perhaps even more so than the Villarreal game because it was just so enormously costly for Arsenal and effectively put a cap on what we could achieve from that point on you know, I think we were kind of always looking at a mid-table finish. And ultimately, yeah, we ended up in the sort of upper echelons of mid-table, but still very much in that bracket. And we did that to ourselves by dropping some really unnecessary points in that period. I mean, I'm looking at that list of games because after we lost to Leicester, Amy, we beat Manchester United away. And I remember how they celebrated in the um, in the dugout when we got that result. And we looked pretty solid. El Nenny played with party. And we looked like a that was a, that was a proper win, winning away at Old Trafford, which we have not done in quite some times uh, and some time. And then, as James said, we went seven games without a win, and there were some pretty terrible performances in that Burnley at home, a game that I went to, 
fun day except for the football. Uh, Everton, when we lost 2-1 at Goodison, we never looked like we were in it, really. Um, were we unlucky? or were, I mean, what was happening at that point that we were so bad? I mean, it's a good point in a way because when you when you look back and reanalyze the season, it's it's two things: it's the actual results, and it's the caliber of performance. And I think when Arsenal, uh, Mikel Arteta talked about having to be sort of self-critical of this season, and I really hope that he is, because some of you know some of the uh, it's not just the the results. The results came as a consequence of inadequate performances um, it seems like for a lot of the season Arsenal just weren't creating enough chances um, weren't you know the lack of playing a playmaker for months really was was something that needs to be properly analysed assessed and although it was rectified with um, the emergence of Smith Rowe and Erdegaard coming in you know, you've got to learn from... The, I, I just really hope that serious lessons are learned. You know, it, when you have a young manager, as Arsenal do, um, the the speed with which he's able to adapt and learn, you know, about things that could go better and mistakes that might have been made that mustn't be repeated, that's critical for me. Can I can I raise one point by the way the Tottenham the Tottenham game when they beat us two nil and Mikel Arteta after the game was interviewed this was the point when I thought oh there's something a bit wrong here and he was interviewed after the game and he said we should have won now I don't know what you guys thought James I, I thought Tottenham held us at arm's length it was a, it was a sort of perfect Mourinho performance in a way a way but I never thought we were going to score in that game I don't know if you felt the same way. No, that was the game Arsenal had about 38 crosses, uh, wasn't it? And Mikel Athletic came out afterwards and defended yes. that. And ultimately, I mean, it's interesting, there was an article a few weeks ago on the Athletic analysing crosses generally in the Premier League and it was That's talking right. all about how, you know, they're much more dangerous if you get to sort of within the parameters of the penalty box into the final 18 yards. And Arsenal at that in, in that game... I seem to remember Kieran Tierney just slinging them in from sort of 30 yards out time after time. There was no real threat at any point. Another serious point that came out of that game was the decision to play Thomas Partey, who obviously went off injured and didn't look oh. anything like oh. ready to be playing in that match. Walked and, off when they were attacking. Exactly, during one of the goals. And, and how costly that proved because it meant us being without him for quite a protracted period. You know, he was an important player when he played this season and I think improved our midfield. So that was costly too. And in that period of time, it did feel a little bit like Mikel Arteta lost his grip on the team. Um, you know, it felt like he'd come in and really established a pretty firm hold on this group of players, a, a quite clear idea of what he wanted to achieve. And it got quite muddy then and... You know, certainly I, I feared for him and there were very serious conversations happening among us and amongst the support base more generally about, you know, should this guy still be in a job? Um, and we and we had no nothing to fall back on in terms of knowing that he could recover the situation because he's so inexperienced. Well, I mean, I, I mean, just to follow up on that point, you know, we're talking about how he needs to learn some lessons. What are the what are the, what's the biggest lesson do you think he needs to learn, James? Um, I mean, keep it simple is one. I think I think he has a tendency to kind of tactical over elaboration at times. I think he clearly is a very deep thinker about the game. And maybe it leads him to kind of second guess himself. I mean, one of the things that I found quite frustrating about our final day performance, although it was a good win, was seeing how effective Granite Shacker and Thomas Partey were as a central midfield partnership and thinking quite how long we persisted with Granite Shacker at left back, say, and, and Danny Ceballos next to Partey and what that may have cost us in the Europa League, for example. Um, so I, I do think there has been a bit of a tendency for Arteta to overcomplicate matters. Um, I think as well, there's a kind of broader lesson, which is, you know, the team really improved when 
he brought in that creative midfield player in Emil Smith-Rowe, who had been fit since October, I think, but only made his first Premier League start on Boxing Day. And I do think generally the Arsenal fans will be more forgiving of a manager if they feel like they are leaning into a style of play that supporters want to see. And I think that the, the most sort of damning thing you could say about Arsenal in the first half of the season is that they were very, very dull. You know, they they weren't particularly exciting to watch. And I think selecting Smith-Rowe, leaning into the strengths of someone like Nicola Pepe, you know, affording Gabriel Martinelli the odd opportunity from the bench, I think all that has given Arteta a little bit of credit among the supporters. And, um, you know, it's the title of the podcast, but I think he's learning to slightly let the handbrake off. Uh, <laughs> and I think he's needed to. Yeah, but, I mean, Amy, he got lucky, didn't he? He had some, some injuries. He would have played Willian in that game against Chelsea, would he not? But he got some injuries and he had to play the kids. And, and they ended that, that horrible run by beating Chelsea at the Emirates. And you went, oh, hello, look, the kids are playing well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been one of the uh, sort of sub-stories of the season. It's not just the kids playing well, but feeling that, you know, there were some senior players who were... Uh, maybe letting the kids down rather than <laughs> the other way around. Um, you know, when the blend is right, you know, I think I think there were there were flashes, there were moments when in your mind's eye you've got Aubameyang playing. You know, before he had the situation where um, there was an incident ahead of the North London derby at home where he was dropped. He was playing very strongly and scoring goals with this very fluid, mobile, speedy. A technical combination behind him of the three youngsters of of Saka, Erdegaard and Smith Rowe, and that felt like a real uh, example of what could be achieved. It was a bit too short lived, um, you know. Things went a bit off the boil for various different reasons, but when that clicked, I think it gave you an idea of what's possible. And if the right things are happen in the summer, if the training uh, and all those extra days and no European travel and late nights coming back from Albania or whatever uh, are part of next season's programme, you'd like to think that maybe there's a, um, a platform there to, to, to find that kind of click on a more powerful and more consistent basis. Uh, I, I want to ask about um, the manager's handling of um, of uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I mean, listen, obviously getting malaria, is, is <laughs> that's a big excuse. And uh, no one's going to hold that against him. But before all that, he was dropped before the Tottenham game because he was late, made to sit in the stand. Um, James... <sighs> Is is that one of the things that Arteta needs to learn about as well? I mean, about how managing players, in a real sense, I, I, managing players. Yeah, I, I think I think that's probably fair. I mean, Arteta, from what we understand, you know, he likes to draw a line and he likes it to be the same rule for everybody. Uh, Arsene Wenger, you know, wasn't so much like that. He was prepared to let things slide if he felt that, you know, that was what was needed for that player to be able to perform. Um, I don't know if Arteta is as relaxed as that in some certain instances. I think it's yeah, but has the sorry James, sorry yeah, James on. has that has the malaria has him getting malaria sort of saved Mikel Arteta to a certain extent because he can blame the poor performances on that rather than the fact that he's just holding some deep seated resentment against being made belittled, if you like, by being made to sit out the North London derby. Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly when he's supposed to have contracted the malaria. It can be dormant in your system for quite a long time, as far as I understand it. But the suggestion was that he picked it up on an international break, um, which came, to be fair, you know, not particularly early in the season. So, and Aubameyang's form, I think he did have a few good games, as Amy suggests, with that trio of young players behind him. But they, you know, that those performances haven't been consistent from him across the course of the campaign. So I think the Aubameyang situation is a really fascinating one. Arsenal made a really big commitment to this player um, and a three-year commitment. And I think you could have question marks over what he might look like in the final year of that contract. But I think we all assumed 
that he was going to be great for us in this first year, just as he was last season. And uh, for whatever reason, be that the player's fitness, be it the player's mentality, be it his age, be it the management manager and the way that he's handled him, it hasn't happened. And he's not getting any younger. So I'm fascinated to see how Arteta and Aubameyang are going to, going to kind of coalesce and try and make this work next season. Um, you know, he, he's still the highest paid player in the club. He's still the guy who you would look to really as a goal scorer within the squad. But I think overall, the season has been a disappointment for him. And I think the player has to take some responsibility for that. I think the manager certainly does too. Amy, we were talking about luck beforehand and, and I, I, I'm never totally sure whether Mikel Arteta is a lucky manager or an unlucky manager. Um, I mean, in terms of VAR decisions, I've seen various threads on ESPN, uh, one or two other uh, Twitter feeds, talking about how the fact that, that we they reckon we've lost six points from poor uh, VAR decision, which, by the way, is the difference between us in eighth place and us being in a Champions League spot. Um I'll go back to that uh, Leicester game at uh, the Emirates when, when uh, Lacazette's goal was disallowed for nothing, as far as I could tell. Um, and then it's, there's injuries as well. Not that we had lots of injuries, but we lost key players at key times. Has he been a little bit unlucky in this season as well, Mikel Arteta? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think on the VAR front, I'm not sure whether uh, things to use the old phrase, even themselves out and how other clubs will be feeling about how many points they might have lost. I'm sure everybody's been pissed off at various times. Um, We've all seen enough insane decisions, I think, for all sorts of teams that I I don't know how much you set on it's cost exactly those points. Also, because when incidents happen in a game and if something happens with 20 minutes to go, how do you know how the other 20 minutes would have gone with or with with a different decision? Um, so I'm slightly sceptical on saying, oh, if it wasn't for VAR, yeah. it would have been Champions League. So I don't think it's quite that straightforward. <laughs> um, I also think it's a bit too early to maybe judge if he's lucky or unlucky. He felt quite lucky in in the first season, I think, uh, although it felt like he was making a bit of that luck in fairness. But it felt, it felt like he was getting... Um, I think if you get results and you're an underdog, which is what sort of propelled Arsenal towards winning the cup last year and getting back into Europe. Uh, it, it felt like things were going sort of for him. And when he took a big decision, it seemed to work out okay on the whole. Um, but I think he took a lot of, he made a few big calls this season that didn't go so well. So I don't think he's probably a guy, he doesn't strike me as someone that will set too much store on, on luck. I think he's a bit more sort of scientific than that. I'm guessing, I don't know. I've never asked him, but... I imagine that he goes away studying all the evidence and trying to come up with conclusions that are not based on luck. What do you think, James? Yeah, I think that sounds right. I mean, I think there's enough that Arsenal got wrong this season that was in their own (laughs) hands that you could look at before you need to look at at the VAR. I mean, is it bad luck? Some of the sendings off. Is it bad luck though if your player goes and you know stupidly gives the ball away to a member of the opposition who who scores? You think of Granit Xhaka at Burnley, for example, an incident like that. You know, I think yeah, playing the pass off uh, Chris Wood's knee or whatever it was into the into the goal. I, I think that will be the way Arteta looks at it. I certainly hope so. I think VAR is a bit of a blight on the game and it's something everyone has to contend with. But there's a lot that we're responsible for that we could do better at as well. Well, I did enjoy it in the cup final. I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> maybe a personal yeah, okay. thing there. That was that was good. I liked the way that the fans celebrated and then they stopped celebrating in the Chelsea end. Um, uh, let's have some um, positivity here as well because, as we've said, there have been some positive uh, moments this season. I watched uh, Emil Smith-Rowe. I think, I can't remember if he played in the Burnley game. I can't remember a huge amount about the Burnley at home game that I went to. But watching Emil Smith-Rowe play the other day, I love the way he moves. That Him and Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli and Kieran Tierney are huge positives this season, are they not? Uh, James, I'll ask you. Oh, absolutely. And Arsenal are so blessed to have talent like that. And I do Young think... talent. Young talent like yeah. that as well. And And... 
you know, homemade, homegrown. Uh, you know, what would it cost to acquire players like Saka or Smith Rowe on the open market? You know, tens and tens and tens of millions, um, which is money, frankly, that Arsenal probably don't have. So I, I think that's brilliant. I think it's lovely as well for us as supporters, for them to be players who have come through from Hale End that we can kind of identify with and get our hopes up about. And they're not alone. You mentioned Martinelli. I think Kieran Tierney is another who's been excellent this season and is, again, a relatively young player. So there is a little bit of something there to build around. You know, Arsenal's unusual in that I think a lot of the experienced players, maybe Mikel Atata might feel slightly more, not indifferent, but more relaxed about the possibility of losing them. Really, we're building around youngsters. They're kind of our core at this point. They're the first names, I think, should be the first names on the team sheet for next season. Um, and Which I, I like. I, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it too. I, I don't want to overload them with pressure, but I think that one of the lessons of the season really is that quality and talent um, can supersede experience. And in the early part of the season, I think Arteta's tendency was to lean on experience. You know, think of the selection of Willian and to a certain extent selecting Lacazette, uh, who was out of form at the time. And I think, you know, what someone like Saka and Smith-Rowe, what they've shown is that, as Arsene Wenger always used to attest, I keep going back to him, but, you know, if you have the talent and you have the character, it doesn't really matter what age you are. Um, and Smith-Rowe's impact is genuinely quite extraordinary I mean we almost forget you know I know he didn't play in that Burnley game because he barely kicked a ball in the Premier League in the first half of the season he came in against Chelsea and essentially has stayed in the team since then and you know the the timing of him coming into the starting 11 really coincides with our results dramatically improving I'm not sure I'm not sure that is coincidence. I think it's because he brought an ingredient to this Arsenal team that we were desperately lacking. And to do that in what's really your first season as a first-team player, I think it's quite extraordinary. Talking about that core of young players, uh, I'm going to throw three names at you on loan who uh, I guess Arsenal might be able to cash in uh, for or try and reintegrate. And that's Willock, Saliba... Ainsley Maitland-Niles in particular, where are you on those? On what sh- what, what the club should do with uh, all of those? I think that's um, it's a fascinating question uh, because you know there are decisions that need to be made on those players. Did you say Willock, Saliba, and Ainsley mm. Maitland-Niles? Yes. I think they're the ones in would, partic- that are most particularly yeah. you could raise some good money for if you wanted to. But equally, yeah, you can make a Gendouzi really good case. Gendouzi as well, potentially. Do you think Gendouzi is, is think... going to generate that much of a fee after a difficult se- season and with a bit of baggage? And I'm not sure they... I don't know. I don't I know. I mean, are... I'm not sure what he would fetch on the open market. Personally, I don't. I think the door's closed on him mm. anyway. So that's the easiest one for me. Saliba... Listen, you guys know what I think about that situation. I really hope that he comes back. A gap's been created in the squad by the departure of David Luiz. Um, I think we've got an asset there that we should be extracting value from on the pitch uh, rather than selling him. So that would yeah, be my let's choice at, there. Let's at least see what he looks like in the first team. I mean, yeah. we spent a lot of money on him, haven't we? I think uh, the other two the other two are more difficult, aren't they, really? Yeah, Maitland-Niles, for me, it's all about... <laughs> where he wants to play. I mean, I, I just have this vision of Ainsley Maitland-Niles in 10 or 20 years, kind of thinking, I can't believe I sort of didn't really want to play it right back for Arsenal and wanted to go and be a midfielder at West Brom. I, I, I sort of am staggered by that. Um, I know, listen, it's his life, it's his career. He should do whatever he wants to do, but I think he's got all the tools to be a right back. Um, I'm not sure I see him at Arsenal in any other position and I think because of that I think he'll probably go sorry I was just just wondering when you were saying that about um, remembering uh, Lauren telling me with a glint in his eye about the conversations that he had with Arsene Wenger when Arsene turned around to him and said I'd like you to become a right back and I think Lauren's reaction probably makes Ainsley Maitland-Niles look quite tame Um, 
and Lauren as a boxer, you wouldn't really want to be, you know, giving him too many <laughs> invitations to Except disagree he, with you. However, uh, uh, you know, they, they really them. had to thrash it out, I think. Uh, Lauren was not easily swayed, but Arson was convinced. And Arson had a really great capacity for being able to rework a player's position, often to something that they imme- didn't immediately want to do. Um, some were easier than others. Obviously, Thierry was quite uh, keen to give playing centre-forward a go as opposed to left wing, whereas Freddie Jungberg wanted to be a number 10 and wasn't that keen on being a winger. So there are you know, different um, vibes that happen when those kind of conversations are taking place. But I wonder also whether, you know, this is probably a, a first maybe for Mikel in his career where he's got a player and he's asking him to do something, you know, he's imagining him as something other than what the player imagines himself to be. And having that authority and uh, that conviction and that persuasiveness to make it seem like a good idea. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that it's, but I don't know whether it's a bit Mikhail's an experience a or a bit Ainsley's thing, own it? character and desires that have made it to be quite difficult to, to, to find that common ground. Yeah, it, it's a good point though. I mean, it, it comes back to the kind of man management aspect of is Arteta still still learning that element of the job? Because you're right, you know, Arsene Wenger had the persuasive powers to convince Lauren and many other players to take that step. Arteta hasn't been able to do that with Maitland-Niles. But, you know... <laughs> He, he did manage to convince, say, Granit Xhaka to stay when he desperately wanted out of the club after the incident with Crystal Palace. So it may just be about the chemistry between the player and the manager in that instance. The one that I think is really tricky is, is Joe Willock, who has just done so phenomenally well at Newcastle. I'm really chuffed for him. Um, but I think it does present a dilemma in terms of, you know... <laughs> Will his value ever be higher? I, I suspect that Newcastle probably couldn't pay us enough money to make it worthwhile. That's kind but of... Others might, others might moment, but have what, looked at what he's done for Newcastle and think we'll have some of that. I'm not, I don't think that Newcastle yeah. should be the why, only suitors of a guy who's just got seven goals in a matter of weeks. Sorry, why why aren't we looking at... I mean, we got how many goals from midfield this year? <laughs> Two, three... And they've got a guy who's just equaled Alan Shearer's record of scoring in consecutive games at Newcastle, a mm. guy who owns the Premier League goal-scoring record, and we're not doing everything we can to say, come and play in the centre-arm midfield next to Thomas Partey, go running and he'll do the sitting. Why are we not being more, you know, committing more to this? I don't understand. What do you think, Amy? I... I kind of, I think it's an interesting case where on one side of the coin, you've probably got Mikel Arteta trying to, you know, analyse and, and you know, the word overthink has been put in a lot. Like he's probably got a very clear plan of exactly what he wants from people in different positions. And it seems that maybe in the, you know, before Joe went on loan, that in the opportunities that he gave Joe in midfield, he wasn't quite ticking all the boxes that he maybe wanted from that central midfield area. Uh, and then where else do you fit him in? Uh, does he play in the playmaker role ahead of... It's, it's a very different profile to an Odegaard uh, in, or indeed Smith-Rowe. So doesn't quite have that same technical assurity. His gift is in his phenomenal knack for those late runs, sort of Ramsey-esque style. His great power... And, and his capacity to, to find all sorts of finishes. That's his, that's his X factor. Where that fits into your pattern of play, you know, what, what's more important, the pattern of play or putting a player in who can do something? And maybe, you know, it looks like, it feels like there might have to be a sacrifice on one side or another in Arteta's mind, possibly. But I, I, I feel very strongly with all these three guys that, I would love to see them all given another shot. Saliba, Willock and Ainsley Maitland-Niles next season. Make them feel important. Make them feel loved. Make them feel trusted. Make them feel valued. Give them opportunity. Give them enthusiasm. You're you're, uh, enhancing that sense of the young core, which has been the shining light of this season. See if they can buy into that even better than they did before or in Saliba's case for the first time really um 
while I understand the club has got a very grave financial, you know, um, scenario where raising money is vital, and where are the, where's it going to be raised from? Not necessarily the players you want to sell. We know that. So it's a it is complicated, but it would feel like a bit of maybe unfinished business somewhere. I feel regretful if those guys don't come back and have at least one season to try and you know join the crew and see if we can make more magic happen. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Ian Stone here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas going through the season that uh, we'll never talk of again, as I say, after the next 15 minutes. Um, Amy, you wrote a piece about the season. I, I mean, we've discussed a lot of the stuff that you uh, talked about in the piece, but the, the, the headline on the Athletic website, Arsenal must be decisive and ambitious after a season spent sleepwalking. Um, do you think we did sleepwalk through the season? I mean, there, we did do a bit of a clear out and we did bring in some talent um and also do you think that this board and these owners have got it in them to be decisive and ambitious oh blimey that's a big question to be throwing in yep. <laughs> in the last few minutes of the podcast <laughs> first of all you know classic uh, uh writer's uh comment but we don't write the headlines so uh no okay. i don't entirely <laughs> think we've been sleepwalking through the season i do think there's been a it, it 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 feels like there's been a, a tone of that where we've been a bit sort of trudging blindly um, through large portions of the season. We talked about the the good the things that have made us feel better along the way. Um, I think that whatever people think about the owners uh, and the protests uh, give a pretty strong answer for what a lot of people think. They obviously are not keen to go anywhere fast, so they are the our owners for now. And I'm so interested to see if there's more um, direction that comes from them, uh, a little bit more input. I, I, you know, there have been sort of whispers and noises, but it's very hard to establish exactly how much credibility to give them at the moment. Because I think that, like any club, there were you know, different plans according to whether Arsenal finished Champions League, Europa League, Europa Com- European Eurovision Conference League or um, or nowhere. Uh, and they have to cut their cloth a bit accordingly. But there was a lot of, there's a there's a you know, feeling that the Cronkies are serious about helping out. Uh, so we'll have to see if that's the case because I think Arsenal need it. If you're 100 million quid or so down on this season because of behind closed doors, then there's already a very clear need to get some help from somewhere. Um, but how much can be generated and how much extra goes into the pot for players? Yeah, we can only hope that A, the pot is quite good at the end of it all and B, it's very well used. And I, I'm about as much concerned as B as I am with A, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. I mean, James, you made a point at the weekend. I think it was your tweet about how... They should have disguised uh, Josh Cronkier as Gunnosaurus to get him into the uh, the ground. Uh, would have been the safest way for him to be there. The owners are not loved at all, but in the end, if they spend 100 million quid on a couple of different positions, those protests will rapidly sort of disintegrate, won't they, really? I think... <laughs> I think if the, if they bring good results with them, those signings, I think actually if you look at what Arsenal have spent the last couple of years, there has been quite a lot of money washing around. I think the issue is how effectively it's been spent. And, uh, you know, we could buy some for 50 million, but if it's not the right guy and it doesn't work out, I think people will be just as frustrated and just as irritated. So, yeah, it's a big summer for them. You know, they've... They're facing this pressure for the protests. The Super League decision obviously massively backfired. There has been this rival uh, potential owner in Daniel Ek. The Cronkies are in the spotlight. Now, ordinarily, I don't think they're particularly bothered by that. But in the position Arsenal are in, clearly, given the financial issues that we've had due to the pandemic, given the fact that we need to climb quite a few places in the table, given the fact that many of our rivals will probably be spending this summer they have to put their hand in their pocket 
Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. Mikel Arteta has been very bullish, hasn't he? He always is in press conferences about the support that he's getting. I just hope he's right. I mean, on that subject, uh, James, you wrote a piece along with some others about Richard Garlick. Um, now, what's the t- what's this guy's title? And what what he is he doing is, for us? He is the new director of football operations. Um, basically, his job he's a qualified sports lawyer, and his job will be to assist Edu in contractual matters. There are other aspects to the role football operations basically means getting the team from a to b getting them to the various games that job's going to be a little bit easier now that we're not in the europa conference next year um but i think from a supporters perspective the most interesting part of his job is getting players into the club uh, and keeping players in the club as well um you know edu is the technical director He's not a lawyer. He's not a accountant. You know, I think he has required support uh, on those matters, and hopefully Richard Garlick can provide that. He, he did a similar role at West Brom, but of course he's shopping probably in a very different market uh, with West uh, with Arsenal now, and it will be a different challenge. But I think he's going to have a very very busy summer just because there are so many different issues to attend to within the club. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, Amy, I, I tend to look at the decline of Arsenal to a certain extent from when David Dean left the club. And this guy, reading uh, James's piece, sounds uh, a little bit, uh, uh, has a little bit of David Dean about him, well-connected and knows how to get deals done. This is exactly the guy Arsenal need, isn't it? Let's hope so, although um, you have to bear in mind that it was the relationship between David Dean and Arsene, which was particularly instrumental. They had a chemistry that was hugely significant to everything that happened. So I don't know how well Richard Garlick's chemistry is going to be with the manager, but you know, if you want to replicate that, it's quite a big ask. Well, that, that's what your piece actually talks about, uh, James, is that, that chemistry. And, and I guess we will see. Um, random ask generated this week because, um, partly because he's left the club, or been sacked from the club, uh, is Steve Bold. Um, Amy, you were very keen to talk about Steve Bold. Um, give us a random ass fact about Steve Bold. Well, he's a, 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 a hero to those of us of uh, a certain vintage. Um, God, it's hard to know where to start. I, I, I remember there was... I don't, if anybody listening can remember why, I'd love to know. But people used to call him Uncle Boldy for a while. Do you remember that? Uncle Boldy. It's got an avuncular tone, a way about him. Um, You'd have an un- a, a big but he old was, uncle. He, he was, first of all, uh, an immense defender. Um, I think everything that you imagine a kind of old-fashioned British, tough, no-nonsense, but also, you know, not without ability, uh, defender to be. Steve Bold was your man. Um, there was a moment that I really, really loved when we were making the 1989 documentary and one of the things we tried to do and it was really difficult was to get the old back four together to uh film them ensemble and uh we finally got a a a, a date and everybody was there and it was so incredibly special to see them all together and we had a little bit of a a chat with steve uh, individually because we tried to speak to all of the players just themselves as well as collectively. And uh, he said one thing that t- that I thought was great. And he talks about the day when Arsenal went top of the league for the first time. And he described how there was a, they used to pin the league table um, inside the marble halls onto the notice board. And in those days, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, there were, there were sessions every week that would take place at the ground rather than it all just being at the training ground. And to going in, and he said he stood in front of this league table and he said, it's the first time any of my teams have ever been top of the table. And everybody was trying to play it down because it was like, you know, don't get carried away, there's a long way to go and Liverpool are Liverpool and it was a huge ask. But it clearly meant so much to him and I, I really loved that little moment, that little human touch when he told me that. It was a very touching moment on the film. It really was. Um, James? Do you know what? My uh, fondest memory of Steve Bold comes from uh, a fair bit later in his Arsenal career, and it's from 1998. 
the final day of that season, I believe it was, when Arsenal beat Everton. And of course, Tony Adams ran through, scored that left-footed goal. Uh, that sums it all up. But the pass was from Steve Bowles, you know, just inside his own half, playing this beautiful lofted through ball to Tony Adams. Um, and it was, as we all know, it was a really symbolic moment because it was these guys who I think many people thought Arsene Wenger would have on the scrap heap, essentially, in his new Arsenal revolution, who had embraced Arsenal's methods, his style of play, who'd found something new in their game, even though they were comfortably into their 30s. Um, and it was just a, a fantastic moment and something I, I always reflect on. I remember um, after that game, they interviewed him on the, on the massage table and asked him about how we played. And you could see, and he actually used the phrase, I like the way that we did it this time. You know, the way that we played our football and won because that 1997-98 yeah. team were really something and different from the teams he played in in the late 80s onwards. Uh, and I think he was um, sort of, you made that point, James, that, you know, to, to take these players who were into their 30s and to go, no, 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 you can you can do better than what you've been doing. Even though you've won... You know, he won seven uh, trophies with us. But I would have thought that one would be... It, it was very sweet because it was doing something a little bit different. Yeah, and, and a bit like Amy's story about seeing the league table sort of pinned up on the wall. There's a kind of uh, a self-awareness, I think, about Steve Bold and a kind of revelry in the fact that he was there playing for Arsenal and playing this great football and winning these trophies. You know, some players... I think they lose sight of that. And it seems like throughout his career, he always had a kind of level head and an appreciation for what he was experiencing. And I think that endeared him to a lot of people. Amy, um, do you think the club, I mean, the way that it happened with the club sacking him last week, do you think that's a sign that we're not quite the club we used to be in terms of a sort of a bit of a lack of class, really, for someone who served the club so well? Yes. If you want me to say more, I probably should watch my uh, my tone. No, I was very unhappy with that. Yeah, uh, to get, you know, a five-minute cursory, thanks very much, when you've done 31 years at the club. Really? Not for me. Uh, I thought that was, you know, disrespectfully handled, let's just say. Um, but yeah. I just want to give another yeah. nice memory. Uh, uh, I mean, oh, you talk of those trophies and make no mistake of how important he was to all of those um obviously 89 he played number 10 on the night but wasn't playing playmaker uh it was part of the back three quirk of uh one to 11 shirt numbers of that era um 91 uh winning the league he was more than instrumental because that was the time when tony adams had some weeks away uh, at her majesty's pleasure and uh, <laughs> yep. steve had to step up even you know more than the high standards he already had and that was a year when Arsenal lost just a single game and and oddly on that game uh Steve Bold I think went off injured as well so they ended up with some weird pairing at the back of Andy Linegan and I don't know I think maybe D David Hillier or someone stepped in and did a few minutes at the back and uh, but he was he was absolutely phenomenal in 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 all his uh defensive leading by example in that era and 1994 90, Cup Winners Cup final another humongous performance from him and all the rest of the defence so but there was a game I remember at Hillsborough it was a league game in I think 91 or 92 or something like that and he got a goal and uh, I think because that from if memory serves the Leppings Lane Terrace was not open in that time so everybody was upstairs in the upper tier uh where it was wood old wooden seats in the in the stand behind the goal and basically the arsenal fans spent probably half an hour banging those wooden seats bang 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 stevie bold stevie bold steve stevie bold he's got nowhere but we don't care stevie stevie bold and it went on and on and on for half an hour and it just got louder and louder and more and more intense and it was just a great 
fan moment of showing that kind of cult hero appreciation of a player that was loved. It was. James, any more? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. His work as a coach has been criticised a lot by supporters. And I think it's because because he was such an outstanding defender, there was kind of an assumption that he was responsible for the defending during Arsene Wenger's reign, even though that wasn't necessarily his remit. You know, he wasn't purely a, a defensive coach. Um, but I think he did some really good work, particularly within the academy, won a couple of league titles and won an FA Youth Cup in 2009. And that team was fantastic. That was the team that had Jack Wilshire in it. Francis Cochlam was in there. Uh, Henry Lansbury, who I think everyone at that point was convinced would go on to become a first-team player at Arsenal. Um, Carl Bartley, J. Emmanuel Thomas. It was a really strong team who played really exciting, attacking football. They beat Liverpool in the final. And, you know, inevitably, when you're at a club quite as long as Steve was at Arsenal, there will be ups and there will be downs. And there may even be an appropriate moment for a parting of the ways, but you shouldn't allow that to cloud the fact that there were some really significant achievements along the way too, and so many triumphs that he did play a major, major part in as a player and also as a coach. Sorry, can I just add something quickly there? Um, I'm glad you said all that, James. And I think there are a few um, misconceptions people don't quite get the full picture of, and particularly um, this idea that, he should have sorted out Arsene Wenger's defence when things were going a little bit awry. I think that people don't realise that if you're the assistant coach, you have to do what you're asked to do by the manager. Um, and if you're not asked to sort out the defence, then I, I think probably one day maybe it, it, you know people will realise that Steve might have wanted to do a lot more than than was. Um, expected of him in his position if if you're not asked you can't just march in there and do your own thing as an assistant coach Uh, I think there was a small period where he was given some license and there was some there was a sudden improvement and then the the that element of responsibility sort of went away again uh, and he went back to being more of a kind of all-round coach so I would say that in his defense and the other thing is that I've you know seen some people lamenting um, the fate of the under-23s this season, which was the team he was looking after. Uh, and they did flirt with relegation. It obviously wasn't a great season. But fundamentally, what is youth development about? What is being the you know coach of an under-18 or under-16 or under-23 team about? It's about producing players for the first team. If you can win stuff along the way, fantastic. But I think, what would you rather? Win the under-18s league or have Bukayo Saka? I mean, ideally, you get both, but it's not. It's the the job of youth development is to try and produce first team players or players who you can maybe raise some money for by if they're not going to make a career at Arsenal, they might make a career elsewhere, and you send them on with their best wishes possible and maybe get a few quid for them. That's the job, uh, and uh, you know the under twenty threes this season. Yeah, it was a poor poor season, but. Half of the players went on loan that might have played for him. A few of them were maybe promoted to play first-team football when they might, at their age, have still been playing under-23 football. It's not always a, the easiest job in, in the club. So um, I would really urge anybody who took a bit of a hard-line stance and seemed to be thinking, oh, well, who cares about him? You know, that's the way it goes. That there is a much bigger picture at play. Uh, and I really hope that you know many people can recognize a great club servant who did uh dedicated a lot of years to this club um and who deserves proper respect absolutely i must say by the way that every time i see a near post corner flick on i think of him yeah <laughs> every single That'll be time his legacy i, suspect, I think yeah. <laughs> certainly one of them uh, let's have a song um uh amy start with you let's have a song. um I am going to go for a uh, Holger Shukai, uh, if anyone's heard of him, and it's called Oh Lord, Give Us More Money. (laughs) 
Yeah, okay. I I don't know the artist, but it sounds like a great sentiment. James? I'm going to use a song that I really like, and I probably only get the opportunity to select for this once (laughs) per year. And it's uh, Two Door Cinema Cinema Club, Changing of the Seasons. I was looking for a song uh, called Thank Fuck It's Over, to be honest with you, but uh, I couldn't find one. I found it's over. Anyway, Roy Orbison. Uh, and uh, it is. And thank heavens for that. And this podcast is over for this season. Um, thanks. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, James. Thanks, Teo, our producer. Thank you to you guys, the uh, listeners. Thanks for all your comments on Twitter. Uh, the good ones, anyway. Um, <laughs> we do appreciate it. And uh, have a nice... Enjoy the enjoy the beautiful May weather if you're living in Britain. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening. I'm Ian Stone. See you soon. Athletic.